So it's been about, I think, eight months or so since we last checked in properly um, with what's going on in Calais. And today uh, we're going to chat to a couple of people who are working there at the moment and have been there for quite a time and just check in on the situation this year. And we're going to talk about the organisation uh, Collective Aid, who they're both working for. Um, so would you like to introduce yourselves and uh, just tell us tell us your name and, um, and what you're doing in Calais? Um, hey, uh, my name is Clara and I'm a volunteer coordinator with Collective Aid. And I'm Maya and I'm the operations manager with Collective Aid in France. Smashing. Uh, thanks very much um, for, for coming to, to talk to us as well. And it was actually Poppy who was working there uh, a little while back who got in touch and said, um, oh, let's uh, let's do something um, because we didn't manage to get around to speak to everybody in Calais. I mean, there's no way of getting around to speak to everybody in Calais anyway. Um, so, yeah, thanks for getting in touch. And it's good to uh, see what's going on there and to highlight the work that Collective Aid's doing. Um, can you tell me and the listeners a little bit about Collective Aid and what exactly does Collective Aid do? and uh, what's its what's its aim yeah um so uh collective aid in france is responsible for distributing nfi in uh, calais and dunkirk nfi stands for non-food items so we distribute clothes hygiene products uh, bedding um things like this we've been here for about a year now our work is mostly split into warehouse work and field work so Every volunteer will go like three times a week to the field and two times a week in the warehouse to sort clothes and donation. And then Collective Aid also works in Serbia and Bosnia doing a whole range of different kinds of projects as well as NFI, like human rights observation, uh, information sharing, all sorts, laundry. Just like in short, we we have a ticketed system for when we like do distributions of our items we, we give tickets with items on and then we take orders <laughs> we take orders from the people we support write those orders on a ticket give them a ticket and then we go back to our warehouse and we deliver the things that they ordered and that means that people can ask specifically for they want for what they want rather than us just doing a mass distribution of for example t-shirts when not necessarily everybody wants a t-shirt mm -hmm. and then on top of that we just wanted to mention that like we we have worked really hard to create this budgeting system which means mm -hmm. that we take stock of every single thing that we have in our warehouse and we count it all up and then we make budgets that mean that for example we have enough tents to last us throughout the whole winter so each week we'll go out with a certain number of tents and we know that if we give out that many tents we'll still have enough to give out in January. Um, yeah and that also makes that enables us to have a little bit of a leeway for when there's an eviction for example and we need to provide more bedding because everyone's lost theirs and stuff so it gives us makes us a little bit more comfortable going into the colder months and yeah it's basically the sort of solution that we have found to a limited stock needed to be spread to a very transient population and a quite big population where the material need is really high oh. in the safest way possible as well. I think what's often uh, a challenge is like in a in a situation like there is in Calais and Dunkirk it's 
it, you're kind of just trying to keep up with basic demand half the time and actually what is really needed i think sometimes is is real like organization and structure and um and that's really hard to get and with the limited resources that that are available and this is why you know like the state would be with its 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 far greater resources would be able to actually implement something you know and actually be able to do an awful lot um and actually kind of address a lot of the issues in in a very effective way but it it doesn't Mm -hmm. so um so actually how things are organized is very important and uh, I always think that anyone was sort of uh, I think people often go to Calais and they don't think that they've necessarily got a skill set that's that's useful there but actually things like genuinely like admin skills like probably pretty useful a lot of the time um and just organizing is 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 a lot so um no it's it's interesting to hear knowing about spreadsheets (laughs) Spreadsheets, people just so I think people often don't realize that like so much thought goes into the way that things are done so like the fact that you know there's somebody there looking at all of the numbers of everything we have and like trying to figure out how we can make it last as efficiently as we can um, when we know that we only have a limited amount of donations coming in and you know so in January we were already thinking like okay we're going to need tents for this winter and then the pandemic happened and we were like oh no festivals aren't happening anymore that's where we get most of our tents what are we going to do so in march um our donations coordinator at the time john set up this uh winter fundraiser and we raised thirty thousand pounds to buy tents for the winter but that was all the way back in march and now we've only just started giving them out so it's like so much pre-planning and then so much time now with that stock of tents that we bought from that fundraiser they've put a lot of time and effort into making sure that in January we're still going to have tents because it's we're not going to raise another 30 grand mm-hmm. so we have to so much thought has to go into making sure that we can sustain the work we do and even then it's not enough you know we have a budget of tents that we'll give out per week which will mean that we can give out enough for the whole winter but with these evictions happening I mean 150 tents got confiscated last week so we, you can never catch up with the state taking it all away <laughs> yeah 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 taking tents away that's definitely the the one thing as well that's uh that's really gonna solve the crisis yeah. ridiculous I mean, um, yeah they take people's wood they take people's firewood yeah they, for cooking and they um, pepper spray their food sometimes yeah they pepper spray food they pepper spray water jerry cans so that people can't use them it's like how is that effective how are you helping the problem of refugees in calais by taking away their means of cooking and eating right it's just ridiculous but yeah yeah absolutely so yeah we've we've spoken to uh, a couple of the different organizations in calais uh, the woodyard and um, refugee community kitchen and a lot of these organizations are kind of all linked together often with the banner of help refugees and choose love and so it's it's related to that organization as well as i understand yeah yeah, we, we receive a lot of funding from Help Refugees and we also work under the umbrella of L'Auberge de Migrant, which a lot of the organisations do here. Yeah, and they help us with recruitment as well. Yeah. That's good. Smashing. And uh, yeah, I think you've, you've moved recently, I think within the last year, from the old warehouse to a new one now. So you've got a huge kind of centre and that's where Project Play, um, we spoke to Otis from Project Play and that's they're based out of the same building as well. So it's all very interlinked and it's a big kind of collective response to uh, to everything that's uh, happening in Calais. 
Yeah, definitely. We work really closely with all of the partner organisations in Calais. To follow up a little bit more about what Collective Aid does, can you um, tell us a little bit more about the situation in Calais and what the, the need is that, that Collective Aid is responding to? Why, why are Collective Aid essential there? So the current situation in Calais is that there's between 1,000 or 1,500 refugees and displaced people sleeping outside. Um, and in Dunkirk, there's two or 300. And the situation is that they sleep outside in all weathers. So for that reason, we help people with tents and bedding to try and keep them warm. And they don't have access to washing their clothes or changing their clothes a lot of the time. So for that reason, we provide clothing where we can. Also, a lot of people don't have weather appropriate clothing. Um, We're going into winter now and a lot of people don't have jackets or shoes. There are other organisations here that provide NFI, like Care for Calais, but we work together to fill in the gaps and there's never enough because of the evictions, which I'm sure we'll get onto. Stuff is taken away a lot um, by the state. People's things are confiscated, so we have to replace constantly the material stuff that people have. Worth noting that we focus on single men, so it makes it a bit easier for all the organisations to kind of split into um, the single men, like the community men and the families, women and minors as well. Um, These large groups uh, are more vulnerable uh, generally, so other associations uh, provide uh, material aid to them. Mm. Um, Or we work with... For example, like we work with Refugee Youth Service to provide NFI to minors. So Refugee Youth Service will refer minors to us who might really need a pair of shoes and then we'll work with them to specifically help those vulnerable people. So you, you mentioned evictions and I wondered if um, if it's worth touching on that now. And uh, can you kind of give a little detail of, of, of what happens the evictions how regular they are and the problems that causes that collective aid is trying to then respond to uh well first of all there's two types of evictions in calais there's a soft evictions and hard evictions so the soft evictions they happen every 48 hours at each site and it's because we have like squatting rights in france and it's to prevent people from getting them basically so every 48 hours uh the police uh, convoy uh comes to each site and they um kind of draw a perimeter and and everyone has to get their tents out of that that perimeter and all of their stuff and then when that's done then the police leaves and uh, people can get back onto sleeping basically or (laughs) they can um, put their stuff back and then we have hard evictions and they happen um, more often now so it seems like now they're happening uh, roughly every 20 days which is obviously really often uh, during those hard evictions um, the convoy is much bigger um, and everything gets taken people get uh, taken into buses and spread around France in detention centres where they are given a choice either to leave or to apply for um, refugee status in France or they get deported so it's like they can apply for asylum, they will 
get deported. For example, if their fingerprints have been taken in another country, then it's possible to get deported to that country in Europe. Or like Clara said, they might leave the accommodation center and come back to Calais. And that's the most likely thing that will happen. They'll just leave and come back to Calais. And it's often they will have been taken miles and miles and miles away as far as like Marseille and they'll come back by foot possibly or on trains. And at this point, they won't have half the belongings that have been taken from them uh, by the first eviction. Yeah, a lot of the time, most of the time, their belongings will be taken. Sometimes they will have been separated from their family members. We saw that quite recently. Um, there was some large, large style evictions last week and reports that people's families have been taken on one bus. They'd asked if they could join them on the bus and that was refused by the police. So it's a really traumatic and nasty thing to happen and it happens really regularly now and for example the most recent the, the purpose of the large evictions are basically to they want to clear the space they want to clear a so-called like jungle or camp and they want to move people away and make it a very hostile environment and the most recent one they've cut down hundreds of trees to completely clear a space where people were staying so that people won't stay there anymore because they won't have any cover and when large evictions like that happen, also the state provided services, which usually provide showers and food and water, they become uh, really unreliable. Sometimes they don't turn up and people don't have much access to food around that kind of time. So it's a pretty stressful and nasty thing to happen. And it happens here pretty regularly. And uh, in the last couple of months, um, people who came back after evictions uh, didn't manage to really settle in a different camp so um, lately they've just been sleeping rough in the city centre which is difficult because it makes it harder for us to reach them it makes them it makes it harder for them to reach basically all of the services that um, other organisations provide and also a little bit more vulnerable to the police because they're not in big groups. Is that a, is that a cockerel in the background you've got there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a like cockerel. <laughs> So uh, whilst whilst you're kind of dealing with uh, everybody trying to, trying to survive um, whilst being evicted and living in tents and things like that, you yourselves are living essentially in caravans. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit basic there as well from, from, from my experience. <laughs> Don't even start about palominos because that's what like mine and Clara's responsibility for Collective Aid is to try and make sure people's caravans aren't absolutely falling yeah. apart. And it's, I mean... We are extremely lucky to be in warm caravans with a roof over our heads and like i feel very grateful for that but yeah the caravans are horrendous <laughs> <laughs> and the campsite isn't particularly friendly but um it's also a nice community because yeah. you stay here with all the other organizations so there's a lot of different volunteers here <laughs> whilst we're uh... <laughs> whilst whilst we're uh, whilst we're on that topic i guess um something i was going to ask you about later on is um um, I, I've often thought that kind of one of the biggest challenges in a way is that it's it's fundamentally it's people like yourselves and then people like me I've turned up as well who can kind of end up in Calais and are working on this massive humanitarian problem and it's not it's not really being dealt with particularly by the state and so I wondered uh, sort of a two-part question so firstly how uh, how did you guys get involved and then um, secondly, to kind of bring it back round um, to where we were a little bit before, is looking at the state's response, which, as you've already mentioned, the words hostile environment. Can you kind of speak a little bit at all to 
how that's going essentially so it's a kind of yeah just tell us tell me how you got there first um, and then we'll come to that um i got here first last august so yeah more than a year ago now although i haven't been here the whole time um i think i just had this idea of coming since like huge jungles here in 2015 and 2016 but i never got around to it and then uh, last year someone I knew uh, was coming and so I went with them and I was meant to go for two weeks and and then I stayed for four or five months uh, last winter and then I came back again <laughs> um, in August this year I um, oh yeah <laughs> so yeah that's how I came <laughs> and for me uh, I didn't know much about Calais at all before I came here um, and I be like became aware of the refugee crisis or like different routes of migration in Europe because my sister was working with refugees in Ventimiglia which is on the border of Italy and France and yeah I decided to come to Calais so I came last November for a month and then I went home and then I came back and I've been here for quite a while since then. <laughs> so uh, that's that sounds like most people that I speak to is just kind of they knew somebody and they came along and they were like, oh, and felt a need to kind of be there. Um, you know, I certainly kind of got that feeling the, the times that I've been and I haven't been able to stay as long. But yeah, it feels like a very important place to kind of try and, and be and do something. Can you then sort of go on to that second part of the question? Uh, how does it how are you feeling about the fact that how are you feeling about the state's response and and how organizations like collective aid are being asked to plug the gaps how do you how do you feel about that i mean the state's response is just all kinds of bad really um instead of trying to do something that would make uh the people's life a little bit better they just make it 10 times worse and they make it really hard for uh organizations to do our work in a peaceful environment so yeah I mean I'm French and I'm kind of outraged at this uh, yeah <laughs> at this response. I think it's worth mentioning as well that not only do they make our work really difficult they make work difficult for all of the organizations especially mm -hmm. recently with this new law that's been passed in the center of Calais which means that you can't distribute food and water on like many many parts of Calais um, which has meant that organizations like Calais Food Collective have been fined a huge amount of times now for distributing food and water to refugees in Calais they've made it illegal which is unbelievable <laughs> so um, it's quite yeah it's just quite shocking that the state would take a step like that it means that people living it, the the law only applies to the center of calais at the moment so it means that people refugees living in the center of calais have to walk to all the dif distribution points outside of calais to receive food and water um and the there's been instances for example where the police have showed up at distributions um, with fake documents saying that it's illegal to distribute on that street and then the food collective have gone to the the prefecture and they've been like oh that's a fake document and the police have shown fake like it's just pretty unbelievable the lengths that they will go to make things difficult for people it's, it's disgusting <laughs> yeah one of the reasons as well that they use um in order to sort of uh, implement these policies is hygiene and coronavirus 
which feels like quite hypocritical because they don't do anything to prevent uh, an outbreak of coronavirus to break out in the camps. And they also say that uh, the state provides food to them and water to the camps, uh, but it's just an insufficient amount and not appropriate food as well, not culturally appropriate. It's really unreliable. Like we've witnessed the state provided food service, turn up, distribute for 10 minutes and then leave, leaving like 100 people without food. And they're arguing that that's sufficient and that other organisations don't need to be providing food and water, which is just a downright lie, basically. Recently, with all the evictions as well, a lot of people have been coming to our distributions looking for food and water, telling us they haven't eaten for two days. And I mean, you know, the material aid is is uh, quite reduced. And I think in order to keep warm, you definitely need a warm meal and it's not making it better. Yeah, and we're going into winter, which just makes all of these things that little bit more worrying. And yeah, I mean, in short, we feel completely like the state has let down the people who are sleeping outside here. And it's really difficult to see. And although we are providing a service and all the other organisations are providing a service, we will never have the means to fill that gap because we don't have the money and we can't just like give everyone a, a house <laughs> so it's a problem like NGOs can't fix this the state needs mm. to fix it we don't we can't provide a sufficient service we don't have enough jackets to give everybody in Calais or enough tents and the food collective don't have the time or the volunteers to give enough food mm. like and <laughs> is is anything that the state is has anything that the state has done helped to actually you said it's, it's the state that that's needed to kind of solve this and has any, is anything that they're doing actually helping to solve anything or is it just making it worse i'm, I'm really searching for something right i mean there's there's certain things um like the terre d'asile i don't know how you pronounce that yeah. but it's the the france d'asile or the like uh state provided service that look for unaccompanied minors and take them to uh, special accommodation and can then help them with an asylum claim. So those people go around and look for unaccompanied minors and take them, but they're also, I, I, I'm not an expert on what they do at all. You'd have to speak, I'm sure refugee youth service would have spoken about them, um, but I don't think it's a very sufficient service considering mm. that there's, we meet unaccompanied minors in the field every day who, um, haven't been reached by that service or who have been let down in some way like it's obviously not working but there's there's things in place they're just not they're just not doing the job they need to be doing for example like the state provided food and showers service it would be great if it was reliable and they were providing sufficient food and showers for everybody but they're not so it exists but it's just mm. not it's just not good enough <laughs> Uh, there is uh, also uh, options for people to potentially like sleep inside in emergency accommodation. But again, like this, the amount of spaces there is, there are every night and the amount of people that need it is just completely disproportionate. So there are stuff in place, but it's the, the it's such on a large scale that um, it just doesn't really work for everybody. Doesn't work for a few people. And when you look at the positive 
the like I mean you can barely even say positive when you look at those things that the state's doing and then you look at all of the negative and violent and aggressive and horrible stuff that they do there's really like (laughs) there's not much good to say (laughs) I'll come back to I want to come back to maybe some of the political concerns uh, a little bit later on but I also Clara you touched on coronavirus and I wanted to ask about what difference coronavirus has made this year and because I have absolutely no idea and knowing the conditions that were there when I was last there which was before the sort of pandemic really struck yeah I can't I, I can't even imagine it so can you tell me about how it's uh, how it's been with coronavirus this year and and how how that's all been going so in terms of recruitment that's obviously a big problem um because uh borders have closed um it's really unsure for all of our volunteers which are all french uh whether or not they'll be able to go back home how easy it's going to be right now for example there's one euro star a day i think uh going from not even from calais so uh you can't go on the ferry by foot um as a foot passenger it's just really difficult to get here to leave if you want to leave. Um, if you want to leave. <laughs> if you would ever want that. <laughs> um, and obviously we need to get, we, we need to ask everyone to either get tested before they get here or to self-isolate for two weeks, uh, which is a very long time, especially considering uh, if you're come, coming from the UK and then returning to the UK afterwards, you, you'll also have to self-isolate for two weeks on your way back. Our minimum requirement for people coming here is three weeks. So if you take a, a volunteer who stays here three weeks, they would have to self-isolate for, if they come from the UK, self-isolate for a longer time mm. than they volunteer here. So it's quite a commitment. If they don't choose the option of taking a test. Yeah. But in the UK, it seems as though access to tests is really yeah. limited. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, also, not everyone has their own vehicle they can uh, come here with so they come here in public transport which is an added risk um, and then during the time their time here in Calais um, we all the whole team all of the team need to be really careful and it's kind of it's always a little bit stressful uh, we're going into winter right now so any kind of cough or sneeze that we have kind of terrifies us a little bit <laughs> I mean we've all just had coronavirus yeah. <laughs> just to say we got it <laughs> so it's definitely um, the levels are much like the, yeah. the, the infection rates seem much higher than they yeah were um, back in March yeah coronavirus is, is quite bad right now in France uh, including in uh, which is the region we're in so when the pandemic began in March a lot of volunteers had to leave because they didn't know whether they would be able to get home otherwise so a lot of volunteers had to leave or they needed to take care of their families or different Mm -hmm. reasons you know really valid reasons and it meant that the teams were reduced a lot across all organizations some organizations had to stop their service altogether Um, we were able to continue but we had to run a really reduced service and it's looking like that it's very possible that would happen again um we've had quite a lot of cancellations mm-hmm. this, haven't we? and then alongside that um, we receive a lot of donations from the UK most of our donations come from the UK and over the pandemic that's really dropped it's been getting a bit better recently 
So we've been getting some more donations coming through, but over from March till about July time, or maybe a bit before then, we had absolutely nothing coming into the warehouse. The warehouse was looking very empty. It was really worrying. Um, and it's very likely that that will happen again. Our volunteer numbers will probably really drop and our donations will really drop. And that's just how it affects us. Then it affects the people we support hugely. So there was a lot throughout the pandemic. For example, people sleeping outside in Calais often didn't have access to masks, which meant that they couldn't get on buses. And it also meant that they weren't allowed to enter shops. Yeah, they, um, when uh, the state mandated charity that normally provides water decides randomly not to come, they also don't have access to washing their hands. Mm. Um, or showers. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't have, can't social distance because they're sleeping a lot of the time outside in tents with other people. Um, they have to queue for quite a lot of services and there's a bit of competition for the limited amount of stock. So, yeah, there's no yeah. social distancing going on there either. Yeah. And, you know, we're going into winter, sleeping outside, coronavirus causes pneumonia. That's a really serious health condition mm -hmm. for people who don't have access to proper health care and who are sleeping outside, who are going to be getting cold. Um, it's pretty endless, the, the risks that they face. So uh, tell me a little bit about um, how you are adjusting your operations to kind of keep corona guidelines in in mind so we social distance from basically everyone else <laughs> that's not in our charity and within connect today so that includes other associations uh we are really careful in the shops uh we don't have a a, a really big social life <laughs> outside of all of the team <laughs> but it's, it's still nice um so like the rest of France are going to bars and cafes and whatnot, but we really have limited that. So we encourage our volunteers to really limit trips to the shop mm -hmm. and to avoid going to bars, cafes, restaurants, yeah. unless it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> and then in the field, we obviously we wear masks, uh, we wear scrubs, which look amazing <laughs> and we wear distribution jackets right now because we've gotten a lot colder and then we wipe them down with soap yeah. and water after we wipe everything down that we take into the field yeah, including the vans uh, we hand sanitize what feels like every five seconds <laughs> we share the warehouse with other charities as well so we have to be really careful there with all of the communal touch points mm. um, and then we quarantine every donation we get for three days. Mm -hmm. We are taking like a huge amount of measures. We have a, a working group within the organisation, the coronavirus working group, <laughs> which we try and encourage volunteers to join even though it really isn't very fun. <laughs> um, but we have meetings where we discuss um, our, policies. our policies, see how they coincide with general French society and decide whether we're being strict enough or or not strict enough because we're in quite a unique position in that we live with the people that we work with so it means that those policies are a bit different mm. to they might be to the way they might be elsewhere because we're all living in small caravans with each other and then on top of that we work with we work with people who don't have proper access to healthcare and all of those things we discussed so we just have to be that extra bit careful no that's absolutely amazing that's that's really impressive actually and uh just from chatting to you guys as well i'd say like granted you're stuck in your in your little social bubble of collective aid but it seems like a nice one actually you guys seem pretty cool so that's that's okay yeah, <laughs> yeah it's lucky that 
that we get on. (laughs) (laughs) I think compared to anything that I've seen over here, you seem sort of more on top of it than than anyone else I've seen, which is wonderful because, as you say, you're working with sort of vulnerable people. So, yeah, I'm I'm hugely impressed, and and kudos to to all of you. it's a it's a phenomenally hard situation, and you guys are absolute heroes for just being there and and giving yourselves to this, and um, and then dealing with all of the kind of global events that are going on as well. That's uh, it's it's amazing. So um, yeah, it's it's very impressive. Um, good on you. <laughs> uh, so I wondered if you'd had any kind of cases of coronavirus or sweeping through the refugee community and if uh, or, or if you haven't been able to to find that out because I imagine there's not a huge amount of testing so I don't like how would how would you know if there was so yeah I don't know have, have you have you come across any cases um I think the Red Cross has communicated with us uh not long ago I think today actually about uh, the situation in Calais amongst volunteers and refugees and the community support and it seems like they've been um so they do medical checks like uh, medical rules kind of uh, in the camps and they they I don't think they do any testing but they can recognize the symptoms and uh, it seems that they've been seeing some corona-like symptoms in the camps it hasn't been like a massive outbreak um, yet but obviously if a few people have it it's really likely to spread really quickly I mean you've seen it in our team we all got it and it was really quick so yeah okay that's that's interesting because I feel like the kind of the situation that people find themselves in in uh, in and around Calais and Dunkirk is one where you're at such a high risk of something like that and the way that the world kind of completely shut down here and it's you know people can like everyone everyone in in the UK was ordered to go and stay at home and there was even provision at least for homeless people as well and that was that was quite a major thing and but in in Calais and Dunkirk I don't imagine that there was any real provision for refugees they weren't they weren't put up in hotels or anything like that so it's kind of impressive in a way there hasn't been any major outbreaks but that's concerning that you know it's still a real possibility I think that you one reason that a couple of people have mentioned to me is that perhaps it's because they are so um, removed from general society that they're actually at less of a risk of catching it from us, right? Because we are all mixing with one another, going into the shops, mixing with friends, mixing with families as a society, whereas these people are completely removed. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the case, but that's one thing I've discussed with people. But also just to say that like yeah it's true in the uk like as you say homeless people were put into hotels and stuff well in calais when it was the big lockdown and people were staying inside their homes the police brutality went up so much the police were using it and using it as an excuse to yeah just be even more aggressive and violent towards the communities here um and it was that was witnessed like across the board so one thing to add as well is that um, this week they've implemented a curfew in uh, the region. So it starts at 9 p.m. and it ends at 6 a.m. And no one will be allowed to be outside uh, in those times uh, without an authorization, which obviously 
none of the refugees will get. Um, so it's we'll um, kind of see how that goes. And yeah. they're essentially forced to live outside. So yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, that's yeah, that's bizarre. I I wondered. Uh, you said they said there was a huge increase of police violence during lockdown, and. Well, I wondered for starters, did it mean, did lockdown for you mean that all kind of, all your operations had to stop um, for a period? And yeah, and I wondered also why, why do you think there was a massive increase in police violence? We didn't have to completely stop our operations, but we reduced it a lot because we had a really small team and also because we didn't want to be attracting big crowds of people because there would be no social distancing and it would mean that the virus could get passed a lot quicker if it was around. Um, so we had a team of like 12 or 13 people um, and we reduced our service purely down to charge. So taking a generator out and helping people charge their phones. That's basically so they can stay in contact with their families and like call the emergency services if they need to, stuff like that. Um, and we gave tents and bedding. And that was all we did for a number of months because we just didn't have the capacity to do anything more. And it's hard to say why, like why police violence became more of a problem, but I guess part of it is that there were less people around to witness it because it, it really was like empty streets because people were only allowed to go out for a run or a walk or something for half an hour a day or something like that. And also because they, everybody had to go out with like an attestation, which said like the reason why you were out, so all of our volunteers had to go out with an attestation saying the reason that we are going out is because we are essential workers or something like that. And we had loads of paperwork that we had to take with us. And this this kind of meant that the police could pick up on anything that people didn't have. So if they don't have a reason to be out, if they don't have an attestation or whatever, they can question it. And to be frank, the police here are generally bastards and they'll use any excuse to, you know, cause issues whether that's on volunteers or refugees sleeping here and this just gave them the excuse to do that even more i think <laughs> yeah and one thing to note as well is that with the attestation you had to have your id mm. to prove that you were the person that you wrote down you were and uh, i mean a lot of the people here in the communities don't have their papers sometimes because they've been stolen by the police themselves so um, yeah, it was quite easy to like find something to pick on, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I can, uh, I can, I can well believe everything you're saying. I remember there was one time I was out with a woodyard, and uh, uh, the police stopped and took all our documents, and uh, ended up fining us for some really minor infraction, uh, something like that, to do with a vehicle um, and the paperwork mm. or something. And it was, it was just kind of, it was basically harassment and. Uh, uh, like one of the police officers was just saying that he was just doing it for fun. He literally said that to one person to try and wind him up. And and then, you know, I've also um, spoken to enough people and we've spoken to, to Maddie, who used to be the um, sort of field manager for Help Refugees, and she was talking about the police violence anyway and tear gas being sort of thrown into sleeping people's tents and things. So this is not, yeah, I think your, yeah, your experience saying there is, there is more police violence. I can I can well believe that, and that's a pretty terrifying and horrible thing to hear as well. That it was just more of it in a time when we all kind of needed to like look after each other a little bit more. Uh, so that's that's very yeah. disturbing to hear. Um, and I think it's a huge testament to to you guys as well that you 
found a way to keep going and to keep trying to help people who are kind of by the sounds of it pretty much abandoned by the state and uh, and the fact that there haven't actually been any major outbreaks so far um, in probably one of the most vulnerable communities I think that's and considering you're in contact with them I think that's a huge testament to the work that, that all of you are doing um, so um, I, I'm really kind of yeah um, it's it's really interesting to hear to hear that experience um, because I just I mean coronavirus has taken over every kind of part of the news and uh you know things like things like the situation in Calais often kind of get forgotten until I think around about I think it was maybe July or August this year uh when over here we had a kind of renewal of discussion about hostile environment and so I wanted to come on to talk about that briefly as well and just talking about the other major changes that might be around in in the situation here and so we've got Brexit coming up and we've got um, a lot of discussion about hostile environment and um, even boats being kind of captured with nets and turned back to France and all of this kind of thing and the first thing I wanted to ask was whether anything that has been done politically has made a difference to the number of people coming to Calais in the first place? That's really hard to say. It's, I mean, over the summer, I don't know about you, but I've felt like the people, like the population in Calais has been much more transient than it has been in the past. So like when I was here in November, mm. you'd see the same faces all the time. Yeah. And now you see new faces every day. Mm. And I don't think it's like, I think it's absolutely true that there have been more boat crossings to the UK than there have been over the past years. It sounds as though there have been thousands of people getting across where before there were only hundreds. Um, and that feels really, it makes the environment, makes it feel very different here because as I said, like there's just constantly new faces arriving. Um, something else that's really contributed to it is, um, I'm, I don't know the ins and outs of it that much, but something to do with the German asylum seeking laws have meant that a lot of people, a lot of refugees who have been in Germany for years have now turned up in Calais. Um, I think for, they get to stay for five years in Germany and then their asylum claim, like well, if it's rejected, yeah. they have to leave. And they had temporary passports, I think like is that. what I know, uh, or temporary like residency yeah. um, permits or whatever. And, um, and now they've run out mm. because most of them arrived in Germany in 2015. Which has made it feel really quite, like, that, that feels quite different because when you meet people, when you meet refugees who have spent five years living in Germany, they're, they're practically German citizens, mm -hmm. speak fluent German, that that changes the atmosphere a little mm -hmm. bit. And then the other thing that changes the atmosphere is the fact that a lot of people are getting to the UK um, via boat, so the population is changing a lot. And then on top of that, because the UK is, um, like you say, it's like really pushing this hostile environment um, narrative that that's put a lot of pressure i think on french government to mm -hmm. do something about it and i i think that might be why over the past months we've seen a real rise in these large style evictions which is where people get taken away on buses and whole areas are cleared and i think that's possibly a direct result of uk policy 
Yeah, but it's still, it's still, uh, it's. Uh, I mean, from what I understand, uh, I mean, my, this is my personal opinion now, but I think people have been going to Calais for for thousands of years as a kind of port to the UK, and there is kind of nothing that's really going to stop that. Um, like, if it, particularly if people are sort of fleeing countries where there are terrifying things happen, and and we know this, and and um, like if you there's a there's a number of, uh, of amazing charities in the uk and they all kind of work with people who've got terrible stories and and uh and if you you speak to people in in calais a lot and uh, and calais and dunkirk and you hear people's stories and you can fully understand why they're why they've left their country and and as long as as long as there are uh, places that people need to leave from there's there's going to carry on being people in calais and so yeah, for me, it seems absolutely baffling that there's an idea that that a hostile environment will stop people trying to get to the UK, and mm. France is hardly making itself a kind of welcoming environment either. And so, yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty pretty bleak. Um, it's a bit of a catch twenty two situation, really. Like no one wants to be in Calais, and. Britain's hardly the kind of most charming place to be a refugee as well. But then what else can you do? Ah, God, every time I talk about it, I find it so frustrating. (laughs) I think also the way that, that, like, Pretty Patel um, describes refugees who make their way to the UK as illegal migrants, um, taking illegal routes. There's no legal (laughs) route. There's no legal route for people who don't have papers. So what do you expect? Like (laughs) if you don't create any safe way to seek asylum in the UK, which is by the way, they have the right to do that. That's not illegal to seek asylum in the UK for people who've traveled through Europe, no problem. If you create no safe route for people to do that, then they have to do it by dangerous routes on the in the back of a lorry or on a little boat like you create you you are creating that catch-22 situation <laughs> like there's no there's no other way around it and then to argue that they're leaving a safe country which is supposedly france well come to calais and take a look whether you think it would be safe to sleep outside for three months in the winter in a tent when there's a global pandemic going on <laughs> and the police are all like trying to beat you up <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous like yeah it makes me very angry as well as you can probably tell (laughs) yeah absolutely and I think uh, I always want to try and remember there's a perspective as well is there are a lot of people who do actually stay in France as well and the the um, the place where I was working before in France they, they were sort of particularly working with people who might potentially want to stay in France as well and uh, Maison Sassam, the organisation. Yeah, so there are people that do want to stay in France, but people that are coming to Calais, they might speak English or have relatives in the UK. And and it's a relatively small proportion as well of all of the refugees in Europe. I mean, it's a tiny proportion of it. And it's a tiny proportion of the global kind of refugee numbers. So I think, Yeah. yeah, I always get frustrated with that sort of lack of perspective, if you like from the government that people that applied for refugee status in france and were rejected and so now the uk is basically their last chance of getting an asylum claim um accepted all this time as well you're going to risk getting deported anyway back to the place that was dangerous in the first place so yeah yeah <laughs> so just the last little point so with brexit are you aware of any challenges that will pose um for people trying to get to the UK and 
also for volunteers trying to get out to Calais. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we have a lot of English and British um, volunteers here, and uh, by the looks of it, it's going to be difficult for them if they come after the thirty first of December. It's going to be difficult for them to stay more than three months here. So obviously that's a problem. Um, we it's really useful for us to have people who stay a long amount of time, so that because it takes a while to get used to all of all of the chaos that happens here, basically. Um, and we need people to kind of keep managing the charity. And for now, for example, both of them are British, so it's <laughs> a um, problem. <laughs> and also means that uh, volunteers who drive might have to get international driver's license and we don't really know what that's going to be like. So yeah, and we also have uh, something to do with donations that might be problematic with uh, Brexit. Yeah, so most of our donations come from the UK, so that might be a bit of a problem. Um, we're trying to set up donation networks around Europe. We've got some contacts in France and Germany, which is great, but because partly because we work with Help Refugees, who are a UK organisation, um, and also because of the proximity of the UK to France and because a lot of our volunteers are English and all of this, there's a huge connection there with the UK. We have a lot of supporting groups in the UK who send us stuff. So that might cause problems for us to try and get stuff over here. Um, and then, so for the people here who are trying to get to the UK, it's really difficult to say, like it's difficult for us to say how Brexit will affect them. I recently had a, I recently like attended a small seminar um, which touched on this and there were some British lawyers who were speaking about the the rights that refugees have once they get to the UK and how that might change after Brexit and one thing that they said was that um, so the the Dublin regulation which means that if people have been fingerprinted in other countries um, they can then be deported from the UK to those countries so like recently there's been loads of charter flights arranged by the UK government taking refugees to places like Spain or Italy or different places in Europe where they might have been fingerprinted. Um, that's a, a European law and that's something that the UK is not like keeping after Brexit. So they might have shot themselves in the foot there. It might mean that there are refugees who arrive in the UK who the UK then can't just say, oh, you've been fingerprinted in France, we're going to send you back. But the lawyers on this seminar that I attended they said it's really a gray area we don't know what the uk government is planning they must be planning something they're not going to let all of these refugees stay in the uk so we just don't know what the alternative is going to be it's it's possible that it could be something much worse who knows scary thought yeah uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's hard to know where to go from there really um i guess the situation is going to be going to be uh, changing uh, come 31st of December and uh, no one really knows much like I think everything to do with with uh, with Brexit what a joy yeah so I think we've kind of covered covered everything that, that the situation this year and so thank you very much for telling me um, all about how it's been um, with coronavirus as well and everything how everything's been politically I mean yeah, you've had a big task to do that because I think at the start of the year I was just chatting to organisations about the specific work that they were doing and and I think whichever organisation you talk to, you can't kind of get away now from the fact that 
the, the kind of politics of the situation and, and the global situation with the pandemic is is a fundamentally massive part of, of day-to-day operations now. And that's, uh, yeah, so thank you for, for talking about all of those things and, and shedding some light on all of them. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot as well. What I did want to do is ask you, uh, where we can find out more about Collective Aid. And so if people are interested and want to kind of keep in touch, um, they want to donate, they want to volunteer, as they absolutely should. And uh, whether it's this year, next year, all the time, uh, it's amazing what you guys are doing. So where can people find out more about Collective Aid? Well, you're very welcome to follow us on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a Collective Aid Instagram. The name is Collective Aid Org, O-R-G. Um, and it, we post updates on there from our work in France, so the work in Serbia and Bosnia. So get, like, give us a follow. <laughs> but like, you can go on there to find updates. And you can also, if you don't have Instagram, um, you can go on the Collective Aid website and subscribe to our newsletter, which is a monthly newsletter, which gives information about all of the work we do um, in the Balkans and in France. And if you want to volunteer, for now, Clara is the person to talk to. Yeah. Um, so you can email Clara. Yeah, or you can sign up on the website as well. Um, do both. Yeah. Um, the email is callevolunteers at collectiveaidngo.org. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to donate, then you can, again, you can contact us via email, which is callevolunteers at collectiveaidngo.org. We have a a pot like a, a money pot for which donate refugees have helped us to set up which you can find on facebook um just search donate for refugees collective aid um and you can also donate on the collective aid website but if you want to donate any sort of physical stuff then <laughs> send us an email and we can arrange that we have drop off drop off points all over the uk um and we arrange for things to be brought over quite often what kind of things are you particularly in need of at the moment? Ah, good question. <laughs> um, because we do get sent some quite random stuff. <laughs> um, we <laughs> we need jackets, shoes, men's clothing is what we take. So jackets, waterproof, non-waterproof jackets, shoes, trousers, uh, sleeping bags, tents, and bedding those are the kind of main items that we look for and they really they have to be clean and they can't have any holes um, so they have to be appropriate as well yeah um so and nothing mentioning the police or no strange slogans yeah. <laughs> i think i personally uh, picked up a nice um i got like a nice pink fluffy onesie i think from the uh, from the charity <laughs> shop like a year or so ago because that obviously wasn't going to go out and so they, there's a little charity shop where you can kind yeah. of like um we just donate you get donated high heels, lingerie. <laughs> people really must have incredible ideas of the stuff that people are wearing in Calais. I don't know. But yeah, practical shoes, jackets, trousers, uh, bedding, tents. That's what we need. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Um, so that's that's what people should do. Uh, if... Um, <laughs> If you'd like to get involved uh, or you'd like to help out, uh, it's really important. And there isn't anybody else doing it, unfortunately. it's uh, the, the state's not, not pitching in, so uh, it's the good people at Collective Aid and all the other organisations in Calais that are, that are working hard. And if you can support them in any way, please, please do that and find out 
more about them on the website and Instagram and all the things. And uh, please, please get involved. Um, you know, I think it's a it's an important thing that we can all we can all do, and it doesn't it's it's a really simple thing to actually do, just a little bit. So, yeah, if anyone if anyone's inspired to do that, please do. All right, uh, thank you very much. Thank you to uh, to Maya and to Clara. Thank you so much for for chatting and sharing your thoughts. And um, yeah, I uh, wish you all the best with your sort of. Well, now you've recovered from Corona, and um, yeah, wish you all the best for your continuing work out there. And I hope I hope it's uh, I hope you manage to keep going and keep looking after each other. Thanks, James. Thanks for having us. <laughs>